and the words I speak and the words we hear be all the words of life to us, our God. Amen. Well, well, what a great story that was, wasn't it? story of courage and persistence of a woman able to have a mind blown by Jesus. Last week we were with Jesus in Jerusalem where Nicodemus came scurrying along at night, hiding in the shadows, puzzled, interested, confused, mind not blown. A man, a Jew, a Pharisee, visible, Yet he was blind to what Jesus had to say. Now Jesus has decided he must go back to Galilee, not the normal safe way, but the direct way, through Samaria. I was listening to a podcast this week, as I normally do, uh, and one of the people on it is African-American, and in the 1960s she grew up in her family in Chicago, but all her parents' families were back in Mississippi, and she said whenever they went home, there were exits they would never take. They were not safe for African Americans to take those exits. They would be in peril in the 1960s. And that's true of Jesus' time too. This really wasn't a safe route for a Jewish man or a group of Jewish men. They were much safer to go other routes. But those other routes, well, they went up the coast. The most direct route was through Samaria. So, this time, Jesus goes the not safe route. In fact, we're told he must. Why must he? Maybe to show and to teach what he meant when he said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world. He is out there in the world. Not the Jewish world, but the world beyond what everyone else thought was known and safe. And so here he is at noon, sitting in a well, while his disciples go looking for food. The well, such an evocative image, especially when we're told it's Jacob's well. Where did Jacob meet his wife? At a well? At a well. And where did his father, well his father didn't meet his wife at a well, but his grandfather sent a servant off to find a wife for his son, Isaac, and that servant met Rebecca at a well. And where did Moses meet his wife? Zipporah. At a well. Wells in that part of the Bible, are very evocative. And it's named Jacob's well. So the people listening to the story, they go, I wonder what's going to happen here. This is interesting. And out comes a woman. Well, 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 indeed. Out comes a woman of Samaria, looking for water at noon, with no name, at the wrong time, an invisible woman. And Jesus breaks, oh, so many rules, and speaks to her and asks for water. And she breaks, oh, so many rules, and speaks back, takes them on, 
She should have bought it. Or she might have, a little dangerously, silently given him water. But no, she takes him on. And in the robust conversation, the longest conversation between Jesus and anyone else in John's Gospel, in this long and robust conversation, he sees her and he names her pain. Five husbands. Five husbands dead? Or has she been divorced five times? She can't divorce them. They divorced her. And now with the man who keeps her alive, maybe for sex. Her place is precarious and hard. And she is invisible. And Jesus sees her. And in doing so, she glimpses who Jesus is. And in that moment of being seen, of being known, she experiences living water, life-giving water, unlike anything she has experienced before. Grace upon grace, being known and immersed in divine love, in the midday sun. And in face of that, Jesus utters the words that only Moses had heard. I am. She is the first, the invisible Samaritan woman. I am. She is blinded by light. Could he be our long-awaited Samaritan Messiah? And then she becomes the first missionary, and a pretty effective missionary. And what I notice is how quickly we in the church work to make her invisible again. Especially the men. How we talk about how she clearly has divorced her husbands, or has problems with relationships, or is a little promiscuous, or and so it goes. All the reasons why she's had five husbands. Yet again, labelling her and making her invisible again. This woman who Jesus made visible we work hard to make invisible again. We do it all the time. There's supposed to be pictures up there. returned 
back to New Zealand. Uh, and because of who she was, she was unable to seek help from the police. They would have been very unsympathetic and probably would have arrested her. So police were of no use to her at all. So she returned to New Zealand and worked as an actor, uh, actually an award-winning actor, and in 1984 underwent gender-affirming surgery. Then she became part of the Wellington gay nightclub scene, initially as a singer and then a drag queen and later as a sex worker. And then she moved to Carlton, where she worked as a radio host for a while. And then in 1995, she was elected mayor of Carlton, the first transsexual or we now call them transgender person in the world to be elected a mayor. And that was one of the happiest times of her life. She loved that job, and one of her great regrets was resigning from that job. But in the end, Helen uh, Clark persuaded her that she needed to be to stand for Labour at the election, and she was elected in 1999, beating Paul Henry, who said some very nasty things about her in a radio interview, and they think that probably lost him the election. As a member of the Labour Party, she was very supportive of progressive policies, including prostitution law reform. In fact, she is credited with getting that through from her speech in the committee stage. A, a speech where she talked about her experience working as a prostitute and how because she was a prostitute when she was assaulted, she could not go to the police. She also worked uh, for civil unions, anti-discrimination laws, and the promotion of Māori rights. She resigned in 2007, in part because of the CDM Foreshore Act, which she had voted for because her electorate was for it, but she personally thought it was a deeply flawed and wrong act. She was courageous, she was persistent, and her courage and persistence helped change this country, and I would say, for the better. I was reminded of that watching a TV program, a British TV program, where uh, there was a woman who, uh, in a bigger investigation, was caught up, and they worked out that she was working as a prostitute, and that meant she was in trouble. And that meant the police were no longer sympathetic to what had happened to her. Prostitutes, bad, were prosecuted. End of story. That doesn't happen in this country anymore. I did note at the same time that they weren't very interested in any of the men who got to her. Because <laughs> you know, us men, we're okay. It's the woman's fault, isn't it? Well, no, it's not. But that's what we keep saying. It's the woman's fault. And that's what we say about the Samaritan woman. It's all her fault. So as I think about the Samaritan woman, and as I think about Georgina Meyer, I think, who else might there be? So I have three questions for you. The first question is, who else might be invisible that the story of the Samaritan woman might help you see and celebrate? And the second question is, 
Who in this parish would you hold up as someone who lives their faith persistently? Or who helps you live your faith persistently? And my last question is, how has this parish helped you live with persistence over the last three years? So, I invite you to have a conversation. We've got three questions yet. Yeah, I don't have time to talk about all three, so pick one and have a go. <laughs> and after a while, we'll stop and we will give thanks in prayer. <laughs>